Blog Talk Radio. Uh, 1990 
and uh, discovered the internet in '94, and have been pursuing internet marketing ever since. My interest turned to uh, corporate social responsibility and and how corporations are dealing uh, with their communities and with the planet uh, a few years ago, and uh, teamed up with um, my partner uh, Ben Miller. And uh, we formed Belong To It about a year ago. Belong To It is a platform that focuses on creating a dialogue between people and companies uh, surrounding the impact those companies have on uh, local communities and all the way up to the planet. Environmental issues, um, uh, employment issues, supply chain issues, and uh, creating a platform for uh, consumers to have a voice to speak out and speak back to corporations and uh, let them know whether they're pleased or displeased with what those uh, the impact that those corporations have on them and their communities. Right. Let's just just go back a little. Um, I'm, I'm, before we get into belong to it, and I do want to spend a lot more time on that. But in your travels, uh, starting in the early '70s, uh, what was South Korea like in in 1972? I mean, it must have been like almost uh, a Wild West type atmosphere for an American to go there. Well, it was. You know, I, I remember so vividly. Um, uh, I was a young man, and uh, the United States was starting to uh, discuss how to celebrate the, uh, the 200th anniversary of our founding, and, uh, which was to be 1996. And I remember um, coming in from the airport across the one bridge that existed at that time across the Han River into downtown Seoul, and being struck by the fact that uh, those people had been there for 5,000 years. No kidding. Uh, yeah, you know, it was. I was thunderstruck by it. And... Uh, uh, I, I learned uh, very much to love the Korean people and their culture. <coughs> Excuse me. South Korea in those days was really just beginning to emerge from the rubble of, of a devastating war. Uh, it was extremely poor. Uh, I remember in the winter being so surprised that uh, all the uh, all the men walked around in suits but no coats in, in, in mm-hmm. a climate like Chicago or New York. Right. It took me a while to realize they were all wearing woolen underwear. <laughs> um, but I was an early pioneer there, and uh, I was uh, awarded a distinction by the Korean government in 1974 for aiding their export efforts. And was really a pioneer in uh, teaching uh, the manufacturers there what quality standards were required by uh, U.S. consumers. And uh, quickly uh, grew a very large business and learned the ins and outs of logistics and how to transport goods across oceans and uh, through the air. At one point, I became Korean Airlines' largest uh, air freight user. As a matter of fact, I inaugurated their 747 freighter service. But I was uh, I was I was just taken by the culture, and it gave me a thirst to learn about people and their their lives and how they lived, and I traveled all over Asia. I first entered China in 1978, uh, which was an wow. experience. I felt like Indiana that Jones. Been, 
I'm, I'm saying that's why I think it's worth exploring, you know, uh, your travels at that time because it was way before most people ever had access to these places. And, uh, I was an early pioneer. The Koreans were thrilled to have me. I, I worked uh, very diligently to get myself a visa to go into China. You had to take the train in those days from Hong Kong to the border and walk across a wooden trestle bridge at a crossing called Shenzhen, which is today um, a city of 12, 15 million people. Who knows? No kidding. Uh, yeah, and I felt like Indiana Jones. There was the Chinese border guard with the big red star on his head and a rifle, and it was quite an experience. We, we, let uh, let me ask you something. Uh, at that time, it, what, if anything, impressed you the most about the Korean culture? What what characteristics either you found really unusual or endearing at that particular point as an as a young you know, American? As a young American, it was it was impressive to me that while the Koreans were striving to modernize and uh, working uh, diligently, they'd work all day and all night if they had to. They were striving to to retain the better parts of their of their culture, their five thousand year culture, uh, and they have uh, built a modern society with roots that go all the way back. They've done a wonderful job of of, of not losing their identity. Uh, today, of course, South Korea is a thriving middle class economy, and uh, but still today there's there's plenty of, of opportunities to experience traditional Korean culture, the, the music, the dance, um, certainly the food. Um, it's, a, it's a fascinating place to be, and it was then. I was one of the few non-GI uh, Americans in Seoul in those days, so I was with, mm -hmm. regarded with, with quite a bit of curiosity. Um, there weren't now, many people who were working and living there in those days. Right. Now, at that time, in the early 70s, would one find, like, rickshaws in the street and bicycles more than cars? Um, or a mixture? Not rickshaws. Not rickshaws. That's, that's Chinese. Um, mm -hmm. uh, lots of bicycles, lots of very small uh, 50cc motor scooters. Right. Um, public transportation was crude, the buses spewed pollution out of them. Um, they were doing everything they can. They couldn't pull themselves together. But it was right. it was pretty raw around the edges, which right. was part now of what fascinated me by it. You know? No, absolutely, and it's part of what made, I'm sure, the experience a memorable one. Um, uh, certainly. Right. Now, in the early 70s, how did the Korean economy compare to, let's say, the Japanese economy at that time? Oh, uh, for the, the, the Korean economy, I don't have the numbers in front of me, was probably a 20th or, or less of what the Japanese economy was. It was a very much a third world country. Uh, they had, uh, had virtually no raw materials. They were able to sustain themselves pretty well in terms of growing food. They, they had to import uh, a, a lot of... Uh, a lot of commodities, any raw material that we needed to produce the products uh, that we produced came from uh, either Japan or Hong Kong or Taiwan. Um, uh, and uh, as they began to build their infrastructure to produce raw materials, um, 
so it was uh it was it was minuscule compared to the Japanese economy. Right. And boy, they've certainly made some amazing strides since then. Oh, it's 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 a miracle. You know, it's it's it, it's it's it exemplifies what diligence, hard work, focus, and a commitment to building a national economy can produce. And they've done it. Right. Now, what what um what inspired you or motivated you to make the leap into China? I think you said in 1978. What was your motivation at that point? Uh, you know. Truly, uh, to see China, to get in. Was, Just to get you know, in. By then, I, I had a, a, an incredible wanderlust at that point. I wanted to see everything into the planet. And um, I, I, I met people in Hong Kong who were able to arrange a visa for me to go to the Canton Trade Fair. And it was interesting because the visa was good for three days because they didn't have, uh, they didn't have enough beds to put people in. We stayed in an old place um, that had army cops in it. There were like five or six of us in the same room. And they rotated people in and out over the two-week period of the, the Canton Trade Fair. <laughs> you had a day you could enter and a day you had to leave. You were and of course, that's a, that's a huge trade fair t- these days. It was, it's, it's mammoth today. Back in those days, they were selling uh, whatever. I mean, everything is rough-hewn. And they were selling uh, uh, whatever they whatever they could scrap together. Um, I went back the following year as a guest of the Chinese National Textile Import and Export Corporation. Uh, I had typical meetings in large conference rooms across big uh, racetrack type uh, conference tables with Chinese officials all in blue suits um, who really had. Uh, very little idea at that point about how to produce products that satisfied foreign markets. Mm-hmm. I began to work with them and uh, became a friend of China and developed uh, an, uh, an import business out of there as well. What was your take on the political situ- situation in China as it evolved from the time that you became active there, like in the late 70s? What, what, what was your take at that time, and how did you see it evolve over the, the years that came after that? Well, you know, you, know, you find out as, as a visitor into, into other people's countries very rapidly that it's not your business to judge their society or their politics. <clears throat> You're there as their guest. Uh, the political situation uh, had not matured at all yet. This was just around the time of Deng Xiaoping. Uh, the country had not really been opened yet. Uh, my most vivid memory was uh, is of standing in front of in, in Tiananmen Square in front of the uh, in front of uh, uh, the Forbidden City and and seeing waves and waves and waves of people on black bicycles. All the bicycles were the same. They all moved at the same speed, very orderly. But it was a never-ending river of them. I'll never forget that. That that, that image is stuck in my mind today. Uh, watching China develop politically, I, I, I uh, uh, did business there again actively in the computer Internet industry uh, from about 2002 
through 2010, and um, the changes during those few years were absolutely remarkable. Right. Um, um, huge cultural differences, huge differences of understanding of people. Uh, I remember training uh, uh, a group of, of, of people one day about uh, certain of the micro-MSN uh, properties, and when we, we began to discuss MSN Latino, uh, a girl, we were talking about the demographic differences of the Latino population in the United States. Right. And um, one girl raised her hand and she said to me, you mean the whole world doesn't have one-child policy? Interesting. Um, Interesting. Yeah, and I said, no, you know, that's, that's, that's uniquely Chinese. And they were stunned. You know, they, information is tightly controlled in China, as we all know. It was the education system, and they're taught that the Chinese government wants them to uh, believe Right. Do they still have that? Do they still have that one-child policy? Oh yeah. Yes. I didn't know that. There are loopholes in it. Uh, Of course, if you have money, you can buy your way out of it. But uh, for the most part, for the average Chinese, yeah, one child is very much enforced. Very interesting. And uh, so, uh, after your work in Asia. Uh, as you said in the beginning of the program, you became in- interested in the Internet in about ni- 1994, and right. you got into Internet marketing. And what were some of your experiences uh, from 94 up through, let's say, 2010 in the Internet marketing field? Well, I, um, Amazon had just launched what, what was known as their affiliate program, where you could sign up with Amazon and become a, um, uh, an agent of sorts to sell books on your own website. They extended that to other products. And uh, about that time, I met a young man here in New York by the name of Stephen Messer who started a company called Linkshare, which uh, he sold seven seven years later for $485 million to a Japanese company. (laughs) And Linkshare facilitated affiliate networks. And uh, I recognized an opportunity to build affiliate networks for major companies um, uh, because everything, of course, takes management, and uh, uh, we developed expertise that each of these companies didn't have. I represented people like Disney, uh, the Disney Store Online, and built their affiliate network for them. Uh, And I transitioned into the business of doing back-office outsourcing for people like Microsoft in about 2003, and mm-hmm. did that right through 2010. <clears throat> uh, built a facility in Beijing where we had research associates, we had programmers, we had uh, uh, artists. Uh, we were doing at one point uh, all of the uh, sales materials for the uh, MSN sales network um, and doing those kinds of things. For them. It was quite exciting. Right. And what uh, what piqued your interest or what caused you to um, explore the idea of corporate social responsibility? Um, was it something that happened before 2010? Was this an idea that was building within you? I began helping my partner, Nancy Salomon, with her project, which is called The Business of Me, 
which is a project, um, which is a program that that uh, helps women who are victims of domestic violence. And we put together a uh, a marketing program, um, 25 to 40 percent in some and some some research shows uh, of the women in America are victims of domestic violence at some point in their lifetime, and. Um, that means that 25 to 40% of all the women who work for the corporations in America are victims. And we started talking to corporations about what they could do to help not only their own uh, employees increase their productivity and reduce their medical costs, but how they could coordinate with domestic violence shelters in their local communities. Uh, the recession brought on... Uh, Two things: uh, an increase in demand for domestic violence services, one, and a, uh, a lot of defunding uh, by local government and individuals who were cutting back on on corporate on uh, on giving. And so, at the same time that the demand for the services of these shelters was increasing, uh, the uh, the ability to fund those services was declining. I see. And it, it, it sparked an interest in corporate social responsibility and how corporations can get involved in their local communities uh, and um, uh, create create um, shared value between the two. Um, our studies show that the corporation that is that is uh, employing our uh, employing Nancy's program uh, reduces medical costs and increased productivity. Uh, lowers retraining costs and turnover of employees, and occasionally prevents a death, um, and um, and and increase the profit of, and bottom line of those companies, while helping the women and helping the communities. And uh, I've turned my attention directly towards what corporations can do to better the lives of the people that they touch. Uh, it's and, no longer good uh, enough just to produce products. They've got to be products that right. are sustainable, uh, using sustainable supply chains, and that benefit uh, more than just the bottom line of the company. You realize that you're talking, uh, that suggesting this is almost revolutionary in terms of the history of corporate focus, which has been almost uniformly focused on profits and very often short-term profits. Um, I think uh, almost exclusively on profit and short-term profit. But right. the fact of the matter is that corporations uh, who look towards um, new kinds of products and new kinds of, of ways to uh, create markets can increase their bottom line while doing good as well. Uh, there's a concept out there now called B Corps. I don't know if you're familiar with it. With that. I'm not B familiar with that, no. Uh, B, uh, B stands for benefit. Mm -hmm. And uh, this is uh, where a corporation uh, modifies its, um, its corporate bylaws and focuses on a triple bottom line rather than a single bottom line. They, By uh, triple bottom not only line, on their, mean? They report not only on their financial results, but also on their environmental and social impact, mm -hmm. triple 
triple objectives of the corporation. Interesting. Now, yeah, how widespread are these? B Corp's got almost 600, uh, got around 600 uh, uh, authorized B Corps at this point, and it's growing very rapidly. It's a great concept. And how does, that's really kind of a fascinating concept. It's almost moving towards the, the national priority of a country like Bhutan, which measures the happiness index. There you go. There you go. I mean, you know, in, in Bhutan, uh, they will tell you that the object of life is happiness. Uh, in America, the object of life seems to be the acquisition of material goods. And so many of us find that after we've acquired those material goods, um, that they don't bring us real happiness. Or just and, a momentary uh, happiness, and it, fa- it fades really fast. It fades really quickly. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. But it's very hard to convince people who haven't achieved that level of material affluence that it's not worth achieving. That's the tough sell. Well, it's something that has to be discovered. You know, I remember years ago listening to an interview on uh, Fresh Air, I think it was, on NPR, and um, uh, Terry Gross was was interviewing a, a very wealthy guy, and she asked him a question when is enough? And his reply was never. <laughs> and I remember, I remember feeling like, wow, that poor guy. He can, that means he can never be really happy. Or relax. He can never really make it. Yeah, you can never really relax and enjoy what you have that way. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Right. And I, yeah. Uh, so I, I, I think, I think we've entered a. a an era of a reexamination of our own values. And I think that extends to how corporations affect the way we live on a day-to-day basis. Um, while controversial, here in New York, the mayor is uh, promoting a plan to uh, fine anyone who sells a, uh, a sugary drink of over 16 ounces. Mm-hmm. Uh, these 32 ounce big gulp things, you know, he's trying to do away with. What and do you think about that? Day, well, I I think it's uh, I uh, personally I don't think that it's something that should be regulated, but I think it's something that we all as individuals should be cognizant of what right. we put into our bodies and how much of it we put into our bodies. I mean, right. I enjoy a, a Coca Cola as much as anybody else, but I don't drink. You know, two liters of it a day. You know, I measure what I and I measure what I put into my body, and I eat a balanced right. diet, and I feel well because of it. Absolutely. You know, I so, once heard somebody uh, say that it wasn't their fault that they were consuming large quantities of unhealthy fried foods and sugary drinks because they were victims of constant media assault that encourages them to do so. And I thought that was a bit of a cop out. Uh, in terms of where's your you know personal responsibility and choice in every situation, you can't really blame advertisements or the assault of the media for everything. Well, it all comes down to individual choice. How we I totally agree. To treat ourselves, our neighbors, our community, uh, the planet. Um, yeah, it, it, it's all about individual choice, individual responsibility. And that's why I belong to it is reaching out to consumers. Okay, and, and tell saying, us. You, give, go ahead, please. And, and reaching out to consumers and saying to consumers, 
you can have an impact on the way these corporations impact our communities and our planet uh, by 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 speaking out and letting them know that you want change. Um, there's a massive amount of money being poured into PR efforts by the financial services sector at this point. They realize they've got a problem. Unfortunately, they see their problem as being one of perception and not one of action. I mean, uh, uh, I think uh, this this huge amount of money that BP is spending on telling us how wonderful it is down at the Gulf at this point and how the shrimp tastes great and so on and so forth, uh, mask the fact that they didn't spend and didn't focus the way they should have on safety to begin with. Yes. And if and if we speak back to them and say, you know, thanks for the pretty pictures of the Gulf, but what you're not talking about is the uh, the massive amount of oil and dispersants that are sitting at the bottom of the Gulf, uh, and ultimately. Uh, uh, impacting the food chain in the Gulf, um, they're just going to continue to do what, what's commonly known as greenwashing. Right. Well, unfortunately, we're running out of time rapidly. It's been such a great pleasure. In the less than one minute that we have, what could you tell our listeners about, belong to it, how to stay in contact with its with its progress, uh, how to get involved with it? At, uh, Twitter slash belong to it, Facebook slash belong to it, or sign up to be a beta user at www.belongto.it, belong to it, and uh, join the conversation. Sounds wonderful. I am I am very much looking forward to the progress of Belong to It. Maurice, thank you so much for appearing on the show. Unfortunately, it's gone way too fast for myself, our listeners, and I hope for you as well. Um, wh- so let me thank you again for appearing on the show and to all our listeners for tuning in to Monergy Life. Thank you so much, Maurice, and good evening. Thanks, Robert, for the forum. I appreciate it. Good night. And keep up the good work you're doing. Right? Thank you. Good night.